Welcome to Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your guest host, Courtney Napier. For this week's conversation, I speak to my friend Greg Gerald about his book, A Riff of Love. Greg and I currently work together to produce The Common Good Reader, but I met him a few years ago when I was putting together a community conversation about the housing crisis. When I invited Greg to be a part of the panel and asked if he wanted an honorarium, he said no, but if he could bring a few copies of his book to sell. Of course, I bought one and the rest is history. We've been friends ever since. Greg starts by describing a little about his background. So my background comprised of two things, a seminary graduate and my kind of professional context has been like a a Christian community development kind of ministry that especially focuses on housing issues nowadays, but also as an undergraduate student and sort of a lifelong, sometimes vocation, sometimes avocation as a musician. So I've played saxophone in regional and local bands for a long time, have traveled a bit, have gotten to play with some really amazing, like legendary people occasionally. And, and so my, like my field of interest is in jazz in particular, sort of a contested word, which is another story for another time. <laughs> um, the essence of the tradition that I have learned, that I've been taught, that I've been welcomed into in the jazz tradition is around improvisation. For a long time for me, those two worlds, like I, so I would go play on the weekends or you know late at night as music tends to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I would sort of do my work during the day. And those two things weren't necessarily well integrated with one another. As a minister, you're always working with words, you know, writing and, yeah. and preaching and all this sort of thing. So I started trying to write in a way that helped me to integrate those two things. And it sort of hit me one day that the neighborhood where I was living and working in West Charlotte called Enderley Park. My wife and I have been here for 16 years now. We live in a, in a neighborhood that does not do well in sort of the data that people measure around poverty and the many forms of oppression that exist within our society. But yeah. my neighbors are master improvisers, right? So what they do, mm. like a musician does, is to take a limited amount of material and turn it into something beautiful. So we've just witnessed that over and over and over, been invited into it in the same way that mentors, teachers have brought me into the jazz tradition. It's not a thing you do on your own. It's a a community that you're welcomed into. I just tried to write, what if I use that as a lens for helping me to interpret my own experience, but also as a way of sort of offering these stories to a wider audience. That was kind of the origin story of the book. It really developed from there around a couple of key characters and events that I thought would help to frame out the whole story. It definitely reads like an album. It's like a bunch of stories within this book that are very different from one another and yet all are thematically connected. I really appreciate that. Also, side note, you can't say you've played with wonderful people and not name drop just a little bit. So I need to know, like, who who uh, are these people you've gotten? Who, like, what is, what's one of your favorite gigs yeah, you've ever played? Sure. So uh, a couple of quick name drops. I, so I've traveled a, a little with the Four Tops and the Temptations. And so those groups still tour. And one in each of those bands, one of the original members is still with them. I got to do a night with Darius Rucker when he came through town. And that's cool. 
and it's it's been several years back but i i was able to play one night with aretha franklin when she was in charlotte uh in her horn section it was amazing it was really remarkable that was one of my favorite performances ever i was not expecting those <laughs> names greg <laughs> you thought i was yeah i mean that's like royalty right so that's royalty. Those how I are, found my way on like, that stage is really something. Titles in their own right. Wow. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Speaking of characters, I read this. So chapter four, Alabama, in your book, I read this first paragraph. It made me think of your neighborhood. I've, I've been to visit you a couple of times and spent a little bit of time there. And when you talked about Enderly Park not performing according to the numbers and graphs that institutions measure being master improvisers. And and there's something definitely special happening there. But this first paragraph, I'll just read an energetic old man gets out of his truck one afternoon and walks up to Helms in the front yard. She is spreading mulch with some helpers when he approaches. Pardon me, he says in his silky smooth voice. I need to let you know that I have been driving by this house on a regular basis. And I can tell in my spirit, there is something good happening here. And then he proceeds to offer Helms a blessing, as he says one does during Beloved Community. Well, this man you end up forming a bit of a relationship with. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about who this is and more about Enderly Park and the gifts that are present in your neighborhood. The man uh, was a man named Charles Jones, who grew up and lived basically the entirety of his life just about a mile or so from here in the next neighborhood over from us. Charles was one of the founding members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was sort of the ringleader of the student demonstrations in Charlotte in the early 60s. And then went on, especially in his work with SNCC, to do some really cool stuff in the Albany movement down in South Georgia, the leaders of that, and then became a very well-respected civil rights attorney whose practice was based here. Charles was also just this incredible personality, magnificent storyteller. By grace is the only way I know to describe it. He just decided to stop in here one day and say hello. And then he just made a habit of stopping in here to say hello. He had these amazing gardens. His house was on our path to our boys' elementary school. And Mm -hmm. we'd stop and speak with him in his yard. And my kids were able to know him a little bit. So it was just a really magical moment for us to be greeted by an elder like that, a person of such deep significance. You know, that became an important relationship. We didn't see him that often, but, um, you know, every moment was really uh, significant with him. So our neighborhood butts right up to his, and we're in West Charlotte. One of our former mayors called the catchment basin of urban renewal. As people were sort of flooding other neighborhoods, having been displaced, they were kind of ushered to West Charlotte. There was a relocation specialist in the city who kind of steered people in this direction, and others steered white people to the south and to the east, black people to the north Mm -hmm. and to the west. This neighborhood then experienced a long period of disinvestment from the city, from big capital. People who lived here, of course, invested their entire lives into making this the best place that it could be. Without the ability to access business funding, without the basic infrastructure that a lot of other neighborhoods were getting that we were missing, sidewalks, decent roads, sorts of uh, parks, good Mm -hmm. investments in our schools, you get to the point where like, you just can't make up for that large scale money. 
Yeah, so this neighborhood experienced a lot of that, this investment. You know, the thing is that if if you only measure in, in the terms that the empire measures, then of course things can look kind of bleak. But if you measure right. in the way that people work in solidarity with one another, despite the conditions or because of those conditions, and then you can mm -hmm. see a lot of giftedness that's happening all around. So that's what we've tried to focus on and to build from those things. The particular chapter that I chose is a really difficult one, Alabama, because it talks about the death of one of the children who is in the neighborhood. An article that I shared in the reader that's about the impact of police brutality, that they call it secondhand police brutality. It made me think a lot of Enderly Park and what you've seen and witnessed over the years is you've been able for 16 years to kind of watch young people grow up in a situation where folks are being patrolled. There's a story you give called The Just Friends, it talks about two young guys who are profiled and stepping in. I think it's really important to recognize that policing in particular, in the way that it's been conceived of in this culture is just by nature violent. It is imperial violence that is designed to protect property rather right. than life. And so the training that our police officers that visit our part of town, like what they're taught to see is not always what's really happening. So what they're taught to see often is kind of like danger or potential danger everywhere. Mm. So that does not create a safe environment. Everybody sort of gets this, that you don't call the police to prevent crimes. You, you call the police after crimes have happened. Often when they assert themselves into a situation, it can make things more dangerous, particularly for mm -hmm. um, black and brown people. For us, it's been really important just to say, we're, we can't, I'm not sure that we can know exactly what's happening inside our young people. They know that they're targeted at the very base, right? They know that they're targeted because uh, of the way those interactions go and because of the training that they've received. So if you've only learned to see danger, then mm -hmm. the way that you're going to react in a situation is not to call out the gifts that are already happening. If right. guys standing on the street corner are inherently dangerous, rather than like the eyes on the street who are helping to guarantee some level of neighborhood safety, well, right. then a situation can turn very bad when in actuality something very good could be going on. It's always, I think, about that, like changing the vision that we have changing the ways that we see. And that fundamentally means changing the nature of policing because it does work up with this violence rather in a way that, that can actually build community safety. You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast. In the place of a poem, I'd like to read an excerpt from Greg's book, A Riff of Love. Aristotle claimed that if people are friends, they have no need of justice. Friendships will carve out spaces that are built around rightness and equity. Friends may still hurt one another, but friendships make repairing harm easier. The bond of affection and the proximity of friends to one another will make the pain of broken trust or harmful words or actions the problem of both people in the relationship. To be a friend is to understand belonging to one another and to let someone else's hurt become your problem also. Friendships motivate people to act. Friendships will create spaces of justice and rightness between people. Friendship is a place to start in the work for justice, but friendship in a complex society is not enough. 
My friends need justice. As we return, Greg unpacks these words you just heard from his book. Without friendship, without people to to walk alongside us, whatever sort of the joys and travails of life, we're just wired to need those sorts of relationships. But it's really easy, especially for white people to think, well, if I'm just nice or like uh, some activists like to talk about proximity, right? If we just get close Mm -hmm. to the problem, you know, getting close to the problem doesn't necessarily solve anything. It does not change the structural nature of the issues that our society is facing. You know, so I think it's always this balance that if we are personally engaged in loving relationships with people who've been racialized differently than us, then that's going to change the way that we interact with issues. Like if you're actually doing the work of building strong friendships, then you're not going to be content with just those friendships. As a white person, if you really love black people, in particular, you know their names and their stories, right? Then it's going to drive you into the street and it's going to drive you into the city council chamber and it's going to drive you to your bank to say like, Mm -hmm. I've got, I'm sitting on this, you know, level of privilege, whatever it is, like, I can't just idly sit by and say, I feel some affection for Courtney without it making a difference in the other facets of both my private life and our kind of common public life. If you're really a good friend, then, you know, you're not just going to like make a phone call the day after another police shooting of a black person. Mm. You're going to show up in city council and you're going to do the long sustained work that it takes to make sure that your friends live in a safe society that welcomes them. Right. So I, I think that's what I'm getting at. And I hope that connects with people. I just read a tweet today by Dr. Cynthia Greenlee, who's an amazing journalist and editor. And she said that she's becoming more and more convinced that we don't know what it means to be a friend. A lot of that has to do with, you know, the way society is built as far as capitalism informing how we relate to each other in a very kind of like exchange-based way of not wanting to impose, but also not wanting to be imposed upon. How did you navigate that? Like when you first moved into Enderly Park, how did you navigate friendship? How was, how was, or how was friendship displayed for you? Because you talk a lot about how the neighbors have taught you so much about relationship and friendship and, and how to show up for each other. You know, I think it's worth acknowledging that for one, it's, it's not perfect, (laughs) Um, there's, there's some real issues that we are in some ways representative of, you know, white people moving into mm. black space. That needs to be front and center a lot. This is all very imperfect and we've messed up a lot. To be a good accomplice, though, means mm-hmm. paying attention, listening first before acting, right. only doing the things that you're invited to do. And then like taking initiative within your own circles of influence, you know, that for us as ministers, that means like a lot of clergy colleagues, uh, a lot of white clergy colleagues, some of them very powerful in very powerful congregation. Our responsibility is to make sure that we're in those places, sometimes being a burr in the saddle, (laughs) sometimes, um, (laughs) you know, sometimes kind of cajoling or encouraging people, you know, this is our struggle too. And we've got to get engaged with it. And like just the process of listening, of paying attention and of not trying to like take over or unnecessarily draw attention to yourself 
and longevity. Those things build trust, mm. not running away when things get difficult. Like if you stick around, then yeah. you and your neighbors learn to trust one another. And that's true in any situation. When we are hearing somebody's story, we are trained to insert ourselves in that story. We think that that is being empathetic, you know, is like walking in their shoes. But what you're describing and what I've been thinking a lot about is, especially as a person of privilege, as a white person, that it's important to listen to someone's story in your white body, you know, listening to this person's situation, a marginalized person's situation, and understand truly how you can reach out and, and comfort or learn from or even impact what their reality is from that space instead of trying to put yourself in this kind of like victimized space. And um, I think that's like a really powerful thing. So it's really easy and sort of an immature kind of reaction to try to over-identify. Mm -hmm. um, that's it. You feel this kind of pathos towards a person and rightly so. I mean, they're you know, right. horrific stuff that happens in the world on a daily basis. And people live through some really tragic circumstances. And at the same time, like you have to have enough self-reflection to know where you stand within that and what is it that's mine to do, right? So sometimes what's mine to do is to, right now our friend Michael down the street is $1,000 behind on his rent. I know people, I know pastors that have a slush fund that can wipe out that $1,000 instantly. I've already made the calls. I mean, that's just what you do when you care about somebody. And also, okay. Charlotte is 50,000 units behind in providing affordable housing for our neighbors, okay. right? So if the only thing I ever do is try to chase down $1,000 here and there, then I'm putting myself into that situation. It's kind of like the savior kind of role. In reality, what's, what's really happening is this enormous structural issue of the way that our common life is stitched together. And so I can't ignore Michael, but I also can't ignore the situation that all of us exist in that has made what Michael experiences on a daily basis a reality. We have to work together to change that reality. Both of those things, charity and justice. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we need charity. It helps people to survive. But without justice, then we're not doing anything that is going to be ultimately beneficial. Charity among friends, we might call mutual aid. One of the ongoing issues with charity outside of a relationship is that it, you know, it becomes a way of reinforcing power structures, whereas the mutual aid forms out of friendship. I'm not sure that I'd really advocate for charity, but I certainly would advocate for mutual aid in the ways that people Absolutely. know one another and are able to help, help each other meet their needs in an exchange. Because of the longevity of, of you and your family in Enderly Park, you have seen what gentrification really is. And for whatever reason, <laughs> it continues to be a question whether or not gentrification is good or bad or something that happens naturally or something that happens through policy and, and, and budgets and so forth. I believe part of the reason why it's still a debate is that it's a useful debate to detract from what's actually happening. But also a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to be in a neighborhood like Enderley Park for 16 years and see it go from public disinvestment to private investment mm -hmm. and what happens. A lot of times I don't think our public debates about it are really helpful in that gentrification is like a fancy word that makes it hard to locate exactly what's happening. And what's happening is forced displacement and not just like an instance, but a serial displacement. 
West Charlotte, where we are now, was, as that former mayor, Harvey Gantz, said, the catchment basin of urban renewal. So we went through 50 years of disinvestment, and now this is sort of the center locus of gentrification. That's not an accident. That is serial displacement, the same group of people. And in some cases, like actually the same families, the descendants of people who were displaced by urban renewal being displaced by gentrification. This is the next chapter in what that displacement looks like. It's about the movement of capital on a large scale. So the way capital moved during the New Deal was to flow to white neighborhoods through unequal, inequitable lending practices. And that was public money. The way that public money flowed during urban renewal was to take some of those places that had been so wounded by the unequal flow of money during the New Deal Mm -hmm. and to punish them for not having enough money, even though they had been deprived of it. You tear down those neighborhoods, in some cases, very well-to-do black neighborhoods that were displaced. Then you begin creating these massive public investment in building the suburbs and create this thing that we call the inner city, which is kind of this racist catch-all term that, again, like avoids naming what's really happening, which is massive disinvestment. And so now what gentrification is, is just the rapid reinvestment in places that have long been destabilized by private and municipal disinvestment. So what we've done is, is just continued in a rapid way that massive serial displacement. And you see it happening culturally with coffee shops and breweries, right? Those and dog park. Yeah. Those are sort of like the, the visual cues. Like churches help to lead the way in this and that's what some of my current work is about. All of it is is set in place by fifty years of disinvestment. So by the time you get to the visual stuff, like it's easy to get mad at, you know, the hipster guy with like his wax mustache or whatever. But he's the tip of the iceberg. Right. And what we've really right. got to get at is the massive structural issues that have enabled that to happen. Some of our current work, especially theologically as ministers, helping white congregations to dig into the depth. I'm working on a, a writing project uh, regarding churches and their role in urban renewal. There's some fascinating local stories that I think have really big national implications. And utilizing culture to help some of those congregations to begin exploring, like, how can we operate differently? How can we join in the struggle that for us as Christians, like, this is the struggle that Jesus was in against the ways the empire was destroying and, and defacing communities and places and the people that inhabited those places. A lot of our white culture has built through the ignorance of that. We sort of step in where we want to and we do what we want to. Uh, regardless of the cost. And then we create missionary societies to help relieve the burden of the mistakes that we've made in the past without ever acknowledging those mistakes. We have to stop making those mistakes. We have to stop displacing people. We've got to get at the root of the theological stuff that's encouraging us to do that rather than encouraging us to be part of movements for life and for justice. We think of ourselves as cultural organizers using arts and history to try to help to um, initiate healing and, and movements for justice. Thanks for listening. Join the Common Good Collective on Tuesday, June 22nd for an abundant community conversation between Casper Turkile, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and Peter Block. 
Find the registration link, everyone's bios, and a link to Greg's book in the show notes. You can find more information about Common Good Collective and the reader Greg and I produce at commongood.cc. This episode has been guest hosted by me, Courtney Napier, and produced by Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.